0: everybody to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me for today's session, because it wouldn't be anything without him, is uh, the limping man in Seattle himself, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I am well. I'm well. I'm well. It's another beautiful day in Zamunda, as Eddie Murphy said in Coming to America. We have another guest joining us today who I am so excited to talk to. He's a good friend of both of us and his knowledge about credit bubbles past and present and likely future is second to none. And that's Dan Oliver, who is the man behind Myrmican Capital. Dan is a a historian of great note and just has a beautiful way of communicating his knowledge in in, in such an easy to follow fashion
1: bill. Yeah. And I've been reading his monthly letters for, I think the whole time he's been in business and, and they're really quite enjoyable. Yeah, they really are. If you don't follow Dan on
0: Twitter, I'll say this now, and I'll remind you at the end, it's at Myrmikan, M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N. But enough of this tomfoolery. Fleck, what do you say we uh, we get Dan on the podcast? Let's do it. Dan, welcome to The Endgame. It's been a long time, my friend. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, great.
2: Thanks for
0: having me back. Good to meet you. And you gentlemen know each other already well, so we don't need to waste any time with introductions, I'm delighted to say. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, Grant, the first time I met, I was moving apartments in New York City, and I've just left New York City to go to Connecticut. To, to, to things are uh, oh. further afield field as this New York collapses, you know, from <laughs> where people are, are, are escaping. So I made my own escape. I suspect the subject
0: of collapse will come up at some point in the next hour <laughs> or so. Where, whereabouts in Connecticut have you moved to, Dan?
2: Well, I'm not sure i want to say, but an hour <laughs> north. <laughs> okay. they're, they're coming for me at some point.
0: All right. So, we, all right. I, I've got a pretty idea which county in, but I won't say anything. <laughs> Look, uh, Dan, I've been waiting for your book for years. You've been writing a book called Golden Tears, which I've read the prologue to several times. I read it again in preparation for this conversation. And it's just, it's a masterful piece of work that if it doesn't get everybody salivating to read the rest of the book, I'd be amazed. But just give us the idea behind the book, what it's designed to do. And then I want to talk as a background for this conversation about that prologue, if I can.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So so credit bubbles writ large are part of human society. You can trace the things back to, to ancient Rome, ancient Greece, there were twenty-three recorded debt cancellations in Mesopotamia. So this is nothing new. What what I think modernity did have something new happen is is the whole business cycle with a credit debasement. I there's in, in the old days in the Roman times, but they would just simply debase the currency. So they had a silver coin, and it became ever ever more tin, and prices went went higher, and, and bad things happened. But but the whole spectacle of speculation and overinvestment and and, and all the details that. That we we can see more recently. I, I think that the first real modern credit bubble of where we would recognize all the things we lived through occurred in France in the early 18th century, and and the background was that uh, Louis XIV, the 14th, the the Sun King, through wars and, and overspending on himself. You know, Versailles wonderful to visit, but you have to understand bankrupt bankrupted France. Building it—that's why it's so magnificent. Uh, when, when he died in the early uh, 18th century, he was completely bankrupt, and, and the state had an enormous debt owed to important people. Right? You, you couldn't just—you um, know, you could default on it, but then you were defaulting right. all, all the nobles and everyone else who was important to society. So there was great resistance to that. Th- there was a debate in France at the time uh, w- when the when the uh, the, the new king was—I think—six years old. So There was a, a regent who, who was running running the joint. And and uh, and the the Duke uh, Saint Simon wanted to default on the debt, and the Regent said, "No, no. Uh, there's there's, no, there's another way. And I had this this guy I used to play gar- cards with John Law, a Scotsman, who was a math genius." who's got a better idea. So, so John Law showed up and it was the kind of reform he'd actually presented, John Law had presented his, his ideas to Louis Fourteenth, who had rejected them out of hand. But, but now France was completely prostrate and, 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 and had nowhere to turn. And, and John Law's idea basically was that you didn't need gold and silver. To to back your, your your currency system, you could do it with with paper, and, and this was a, a fairly a, a very novel idea. And and the first stages of it, I think this is, the, is an important point, weren't so revolutionary. What 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 John Law wanted to do was create a what he did do was create a private bank, and and, and the notable people of France, including the region uh, himself, deposited their gold and silver in his bank, and the bank issued out certificates representing that gold and silver. And, and the reason why this was so innovative is because it was not backed by the sovereign. The, the French leave, which is the sovereign currency, had had its value change hundreds of times over the, the previous couple of centuries. Because the price of gold and silver themselves, the ratio had changed, the, the the overall price had changed, so they, they would constantly change. And of course, they did it to default on their debt slowly. Well, John Law, a private bank, couldn't do that. He, he had to actually fulfill his contract and return the amount of gold and silver that, that was deposited. And so the market trusted his notes much more so than it trusted the, the sovereign notes. And so his notes began to circulate around France more so than the official currency because it was so solid the back. And of course, your viewers will will hear echoes of that in current free market of today's, right? People want to set up their own private banks and have their own cryptocurrencies backed by gold or repair backed by gold. I think Texas has a new yeah. depository, and of course, the government's very jealous of their of their power. We haven't gotten to the stage where private money can circulate legally, but but we'll get there the same way France got there. Uh, and, and so that was the first thing he did, which again was 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 very clever and and uh, based soundly on sound principles of banking and liquidity. The second thing he did. Um, which is a little more controversial in the hard money circles but I, I i'm i'm a proponent of what he did and that was he, he said look um for companies and obviously the economy is less developed than, than it is now but but you still had supply chains so when you go buy something in a store the, the storekeeper didn't make it he bought it from someone else and usually there's a chain of, of suppliers so uh when you buy bread the, the very simple example is the, the the farmer grows the wheat the miller turns." It in the flour, and the baker bakes it and sells the consumer. So that's a very simple supply chain. And, and the way it works is, and it still works today, it worked then, it's always worked this way. That when an intermediate manufacturer sells his good to the next guy in the chain, that guy says, I'll pay you in 30 days. And the reason he does it is because he's got to sell that product to get the working capital to, to pay back the, the, the order he just made. And and so before the bank came along, people would buy and sell these so-called commercial bills in the market, they, they circulate on their own. And so John Law said, look, uh, I will buy them. So I'll, I'll create new money. And you know, this isn't fiat money, it's money backed by these commercial invoices. And the reason I think this was not inflationary, unlike some people in the hard money circles, is because this represented uh, transactions that had already occurred. And the only remaining risk was settlement, of which there was almost no risk, because these were these weren't cars or buildings, these were like bread and, and clothes, and then fast-moving consumer goods, which of which there's a constant uh, consumption. People don't just stop eating bread one day. It's, it's something that, that keeps going. And, and the bank discounted the value of these bills for the risk of default, and also the time value of money. So it really was um, um, just reflecting liquidity, something that already happened, and creating money against that. And again, he, he did this, um, and these notes were very successful. In fact, so successful that people stopped using the official currency of France, and the regent made his notes um, uh, a legal tender. So you could use John Law's private notes. To pay your taxes and, and your bills uh, due to the state, which were numerous. Right? I mean, you know, this time in France, like, like today, there were state monopolies and there were taxes, I everything mean, you did. So, so you know, people were always paying money to the state, and you could use John Law's notes. Once, once that happened, in, in my view, it opened up a, a new avenue for a third way to issue currency. Again, the first way was against gold and silver, the second way was against commercial invoices, commercial bills. And the third way was this. Uh, John Law set up a second company, which became known as the Mississippi Company. A- and that company uh, bought the monopoly uh, for the right to trade with the Mississippi territory that France had in, in the Americas. People, you may, I don't know how well history is taught today, but France owned about a third of the United States, so the central third, and that was this territory. Uh, it was completely undeveloped, uh, uh, full of uh, uh, um, the residents who didn't appreciate the, the new arrivals uh, and disease and, and things like that. So it actually had no value. But, but what John Law did was he he raised money to populate this area and develop it. And, and the plan was to take uh, France's poor and criminals and, and send them over there, a bit like Australia, and, and, and develop it. So, so he went out and raised money in an equity offering for this new company. And he also did something which, to me, was a, was the sea change, the part worth waiting for in this conversation. And that is, he had his bank print up money and go buy these shares in the market because he thought they were too low. And, and that boosted the share price of Mississippi Company. And the, f- and the first people who subscribed to this offering made a lot of money. And, and what happened next, which, which again, we're now we're getting into the period of modernity everyone will recognize, um, once the share price started going higher, John Law's bank would would accept that as collateral, shares as collateral, to lend more money. So you could take your shares, give it to the bank, borrow more money, use that money to buy more shares, have the share price go up. Now you're more collateralized, and you can borrow more money. So, so it became this feedback loop of shares going higher, and I, as if I recall, the shares Went from around a uh, two hundred dollars uh, a two hundred leave per, per share to about ten thousand over the next uh, um, uh, three years, and people traded the options, uh, futures. There, there were there were there were warrants that were existing. So the whole panoply of what we understand as modern finance uh, developed ar- around these shares, and obviously uh, gains of that magnitude, which which the world had never seen before in, in this organized fashion, attracted capital throughout throughout Europe, and speculation began to broaden to, for example, coaches going to France and other countries, and, and noblemen in and other places would 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 sell their assets for money, jump in a coach, which will have become extremely expensive, obviously, come to France, deposit at, the, at John Law's bank, get money uh, to, go, to go buy shares. And there are all kinds of amusing stories like uh, a, a nobleman uh, trying to win the hand of John Law's daughter, who I think was eight at the time, <laughs> because he become the richest man of France, the second richest man after, after the region. So, uh, but but more of the point is set again. Is set in in motion the the standard picture of what I view as a credit bubble, which is um, that the bank finances an asset, which increases its price, which creates more collateral, which creates allows the bank to to lend more, and this is. Basically, the story of the housing bubble. I mean, the, the, the commercial yeah. banks, it wasn't the Fed. It was the commercial banks who create credit to give to, to home buyers in, in the 2000s that boosted home prices uh, and, and then created more, more capacity to borrow more money. Uh, and it happens with stocks and every other asset class.
0: Dan, let's stop the story there before we get to the kind of denouement, which is, sure. which is interesting and entertaining and equal part. But let's kind of pick some of that apart. Because yeah. in that story, this is why I'm so fascinated by it and why I wanted to talk to you about it is everything you could want to talk about. We have a Ponzi scheme, in effect. We have leveraged finance. We have margins. We have printed money. We have gold and silver. It's all in this story, which is why it's such a beautiful thing to pick apart. But let's go back to that decision. Which of those decisions to you was really the one that set the ultimate end in margin? Was it the commercial paper decision or was it stage three after that, where it's, well, we're just going to go and print with abandon?
2: Yeah, see, see for, for me, it, w- it was not the commercial paper decision. And in fact, uh, when Paul Warburg, who was the European banker who designed the Federal Reserve, set it up, uh, the original Federal Reserve Act constrained the Federal Reserve to only creating money against commercial invoices. This was the, the century had proven this as sound pras- practice, whereas printing money to buy As it was speculative value, is where I went wrong. This Mississippi company had no value, but yet the bank was able to to bid those shares up. And in the process of bidding the shares up, the company itself was able to issue new shares again, a very familiar feature of modern finance to buy other monopolies. So within a few years, that Mississippi company owned not just the Mississippi monopoly, but the monopoly on tobacco and trade and salt and all sorts of other things, but part of the state function had taken over essentially. And so that's that's what, in my view, created the, 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 the bubble, which was creating purchasing power against the future as opposed to against the past.
0: Right. And just take us, if you can, inside the sentiment of the time. Because, you, know, you, you talk there about people you know, selling everything on their own and moving into France to do this. But what was sentiment like? Because obviously, there wasn't really a share market per se, as we understand. It today. This was really the birth of everything.
2: Well, it's interesting. There was a market for bills. Again, bills, yes. you know, b- bills had existed long before John Law's banks. In fact, they've been around since the 12th century. And people, uh, uh, merchant banks and, and merchants would trade shares in exchanges uh, for hundreds of years. What was new was trading the equity of the company. Yeah. That was the the the, the, the new thing that, that John Law inaugurated. And he did it again in conjunction with a bank. And, and again, it's interesting if you read Ah, uh, Paul Warburg's writings when he was designing the Federal Reserve, uh, but back in, in 1907, he talks about how it's important to bifurcate the money making authority, i.e., the central bank, from the money lending authority, i.e., the commercial banks, because in John Law's banks, the two were the same—that his bank both created the money and lent the money—and so there was nowhere to turn the inflation or engine off. And the whole idea of the of the Federal Reserve was that if the commercial banks got out of hand. The, the, the Federal Reserve, as a, as a money-making authority, could 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 withdraw the money and and keep and, and therefore keep the commercial banks uh, in in check. Now it hasn't worked out that way, but but in theory it was it was a better thing than having the unifier. There was no way to turn turn the engine off.
1: Yeah, it was the proverbial lender of last resort in an illiquid market. That was the original design of the Fed, and of course now it's morphed to. Push up asset prices, solve global warming, <laughs> inequity, inequality. <laughs> you know,
2: blah blah. Well, and, and you're missing, Bill. The, the 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 real point of it. and Actually, Warburg wrote this within 18 months. Of the Federal Reserve's founding, it was put into service to fight a war. Right? It right. financed yeah. World War One, and so its real its real purpose has actually been to fund the state and, and the state, whatever the state is up to, whether it's fighting global warming, the, the you know the the global warming scam, or or war, or or poverty, or whatever it chooses to do.
0: Dan, there was another point in this that I think was an important and interesting shift that was barely noticed and has happened again in modern times. And that was the shift in terms of what it actually said on the lever, right? That There was a subtle shift in that, which we saw in modern finance as well. Just talk about that for me, because it's so important, but most people will miss it.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so as I mentioned, when John Law first started going, it was a private bank, the private notes, and the notes said on them, you know, "This note is redeemable at the bank in a certain amount of gold and silver." Um, the bank was so successful, but part of I, I glossed over was once the region first, he said. That France, the government would accept these private notes, and then I said, "Hey, you know what? This makes no sense to be a private bank. Let's make it a public bank." And so it became taken over by the state. And when they did that, they changed the notes to start saying instead of that you know, these notes were redeemable for gold and silver, they were redeemable for a certain number of livres, i.e., the official currency of, of France, which was a political. Instrument, not a market instrument, and and to your point, when the Federal Reserve first got going, its notes were redeemable at the Federal Reserve into uh, into gold, and then of course uh, after 1933, when Federal Roosevelt, when Franklin Roosevelt made owning gold bullion a felony, which which remained a felony for 40 years, uh, it, the, the notes just simply the the text is replaced. It said this it, legal tender. It's just not backed by anything. It simply became a unit of the Federal Reserve's liability that you couldn't do anything except get more Federal Reserve notes for it. Yeah.
0: As I say, that's why I love this story. There are so many parallels. Yeah. To and, you know.
2: and the real point that you're bringing up is that, is, and again, that's true if you look back at any monetary, of any banking system, not every bank, but every banking system, it starts as free market money. I mean, the bank adds liquidity to free market money the way. John Law's bank initially added liquidity to gold and silver. Same thing happened in China. You know, the, the Chinese, we all know, inaugurated paper money. And if you go back and read, uh, uh, as I have, an <laughs> eighth-century eight Chinese text, the, the money—same thing—it's redeemed into copper. In fact, in China, and then later on in the 12th century, the Mongols take over. It, it simply says this represents copper and it will be accepted as copper, or you will be beheaded right, right on the uh, <laughs> right, right on the notes. And so, that same transformation from. From pre- pre-market political money, and interestingly, uh, I came across a snippet of some fresh travelers in China in the 19th century, and, and they were surprised that um, when they got there uh, in the mid 1800s, that there was no sovereign money because the sovereign money had disappeared through hyperinflation, only private money, and they, and they remarked how how strange it was that this non-sovereign money circulated, and the answer is it's certainly because it wasn't sovereign, not despite the fact it wasn't sovereign, and 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 that's and again that's the progress that every bank system sees and once you get to the political money stage the money becomes a mechanism to fund the state and, and the collateral damages of course you damage your economy and eventually that money fails and the world turns back to to uh, free market money and so that will happen again i mean the, the the timing and the messiness around this is is, is interesting but the, but that that overall pattern repeats itself for thousands of years and it's repeating again right now
0: well, and we'll get to the, the modern parallels, and that you know that's the whole point of our endgame search is to figure out what what it looked like. But but let's get back to John Law and get sure. to the juicy part of the story where <laughs> okay. this little this little scheme of his starts that the wheels start to wobble a little bit.
2: Yeah. So at first, when the share price going higher, everyone's content just to make more money. Isn't it great? Your bank account is this instead of that. Isn't that wonderful? But of course, eventually, people want to start spending the money. <laughs> That's the part of making it right. And and so again, very similar to our current circumstance, the first things to jump in price were luxury items, um, because people with assets, who pre-existing assets, were making less of money, and they already had, you know, they would then go buy more food. They went out and bought more estates and and, and, uh, and courtesans and things like that. So, and there, and there are all kinds of amusing stories of noblemen finding their cook at the opera, you know, how did you get here? Or, uh, or a fellow who bought a coach, a coach driver, he's supposed to be you know, in it and he rides off on top of it. And people thought it was very amusing. Um, but, uh, so, so first the luxury items are going in price and, and, and that's, that's okay. Uh, but, but then the problem is that staples start going up in price. And so the the this this inflation this money pouring into all parts of the economy. It starts setting all prices. So those who are not in the asset game game uh, see serious declines in the purchasing power. And so all of a sudden you get this divergence between uh, I hate to use the Marxist uh, terms haves and have-nots, but that that's what creates those di- divergent groups. And, and then and then. You, you get you know, lots of unhappiness, and the other thing that happens, of course, is as I mentioned earlier with with the housing bubble, is when when prices start going up in in, uh, in in free markets, that signals a scarcity, and so it entices entrepreneurs to go start building constructing new assets to fill that demand because there's too few of them. But of course, the problem is that in in bubbles, the rising prices don't reflect scarcity; they they reflect bank creation of funds. And so people start building things that really are not being demanded by, by the market, like houses in 2007, the number of houses that, that were constructed. And you wind, up with over, you wind up with overcapacity. And when you have overcapacity, your, your rents start falling because you've got, obviously, by definition, too much of, of, of a certain asset class, which is capital intense assets. And once that happens... The borrowers can no longer make their payments to the bank or all the debt they've taken on because it again seems so easy when 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 asset prices are going up so high, right? Any amount of interest seems zero or negative uh, b- because because it just melts away, right? So who wouldn't borrow as much money as they possibly could to play play that game? And I mean, you see people get in trouble in the stock market if 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 Tesla's going to go up ten percent every week. Well, why wouldn't you margin up every? Every dollar you can to buy more of it, right? And, and, and that's what people do. And then when there's a reaction, uh, you know, b- bad things happen. And that's exactly what happened to, to, to John Law. Is, um, it's, it's actually a little more interesting than that. So, the, as I mentioned, the stock went from 300, call it, to 10,000. When it hit around 5,000, so about halfway into the move, it, it had a reaction, it went to about 400,000. And John Law uh, marched out and, and said he, that the bank, his bank, would buy any and all shares tendered to it, and I can't remember exactly the price, but forty five hundred. Some number like that. So basically, gave the whole market a free put option, and, and the market said, "Hey, look, if the banks willing to buy it at, at a price above the market price, you know why would I sell it here, right?" So right. The, the stocks were zooming higher and got to about ten thousand, and and then it had another reaction. It wasn't a big one. Back to about nine nine thousand, and and John Law looked at his toolkit, and he used that that word for a reason, because that's what the Fed says it has. It, it tool. He it said, hey, th- this tool is great. I'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll run out and I'll say, hey, I'll, I'll buy all the this, the, the stocks center to me at $9,000. And I'll leave a share. This time, people said, great, here are a billion of these things. Like, give us the money. And so he was able to stabilize the share price of the Mississippi. But of course, after that, his currency collapsed because he had to issue so much of it overnight to fund this this guarantee he would made in the market and and I've always thought again to, to make the parallel that that's more or less what the fed did in 2008 right you yeah. you had a big revulsion in asset prices and it wasn't the stock market it was the bond market but it doesn't really matter and the fed went out and it wasn't so much the qes that turned it around it stopped the panic the, the fed ran out And they got deal off hand bill what what the number was i think it was 3 or 4 maybe maybe 6 trillion dollars of guarantees the fed shot it out to the banks to, to guarantee the value of of uh, of mortgage backed securities and other assets. Yeah, no,
1: I don't remember what the number was, but uh, <laughs> it's it, it was in the, it was in that magnitude, and and it, it was an incident where where uh,
2: where Bernanke was called before Congress to ask about this, and he said, no, no, that number is crazy. We we only lent out. I forget what the number was, you know, trillion or, or half a trillion. And, and Bloomberg, all places, made made the point, the, the, the news service, that it wasn't about how much he actually lent, the guarantees that did it. Right. Because once the Fed is going to guarantee it, then who's going to sell it for less than that
1: price? Well, it's like when they bought corporate bonds last year, right? They didn't even have to buy very many, and all of a sudden, the whole corporate bond market got a bid because the Fed had their back, right?
2: Yeah, that that's right, and, my, and the reason I bring it up is because this is exactly what John Law did. This is exactly what he did. He he gave the guarantee to the share price, and it worked the first time. Didn't work the second time, and I've and I've always wondered if at some point the Fed is going to do this again. At some point, you know, maybe not now, but it's simply the future, the near future, where the market has a revulsion. They 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 look in their toolkit and they say, hey, these guarantees are really great things. Yeah. Let's try it again. And and what happens when this time the banks say, okay, yeah, Fed, okay, yeah, here are ten trillion dollars of assets. Uh, you know, pay up, right? Well, what, what do they do? Is say, "Oh no, we were just kidding," and then the asset markets collapse, or they say, "Okay, yeah, here's ten trillion dollars of cash, uh, uh, banks, uh, and and now we, we just made the the, uh, the the currency circulation go up, you know, one and a half, two times overnight. The the, the
0: the beauty of these stories, Dan, is that you don't need to draw the parallels for people. They're so obvious, <laughs> right, with what's going on. But let's talk a little bit about gold and silver's place. Through this timeline, you know, because sure. the beginning of it, it was money, and then through that, I know that that changed and morphed, and then it came back again at the end, as it always does. So, run me through the cycle of precious metals during this.
2: Yeah, so, so my view, uh, gold and silver are f- uh, free market money, and and the best way to think about what an asset is worth is to look at it through their through that lens, through what's what it's worth in gold terms. Um, the, the way it worked in John Law's time was. As I mentioned, uh, 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 well, uh, elaborate. A, a gold coin isn't so liquid in that um, gold coins over time they get clipped, they get worn out. So, so there have been times in history where you had to measure the gold coin you were tendering payment with, along with the thing you were buying. And so, the whole point of the bank was that. If the bank's done that for you, so so you've gone to the bank, you've delivered your gold, and they've given you a certificate that says, We have so much gold at the bank, and people trust the certificate because the bank is trustworthy, like the bank of Amsterdam. The market actually prefers the certificate to the gold coin. Um, And and in fact, the initial stages of, of John Law's experiment. Uh, uh, his paper traded at a ten percent premium to gold coin. So, in fact, if you didn't go to his bank and deposit your gold, you, you were you were surrendering purchasing power. And and again, this makes sense. And and so it drew the country into his system because, again, if, if you have a bank that's that's operating liquidity principles, it is better. <laughs> so so that that's how banks get bigger. And and then what happens is, as I mentioned, they start going off the rails. And and um. Uh, it becomes clouded in modernity, but again, cast your mind back to pre-1933, even better, pre-1920, 1920, 1920, the 1920 world, or World War I, I guess. When you have a credit inflation, prices go up in terms of currency and gold because they're one on the same. I and mean, that makes it obvious, right? I mean, prices go up in a bubble and they crash in, uh, in when, when the bus comes. It's less obvious today because people look at prices through the dollar lens. And so they don't really know what prices are doing because they don't look at through a gold lens. But it's still the case today that in a credit bubble, prices go up in terms of gold. Uh, and, and that happened you know, from 2011, 2019. Uh, uh, a lot of gold blood squawked that gold wasn't doing well. What it shouldn't do well in a credit bubble. That that's It's never done right. well in a credit yeah. bubble. It does badly. That's the whole point. And then in the bust, the value of gold uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say the value of gold is constantly. The value of other things start crashing against gold. Now, in a fiat currency, that can mean the gold price goes up. But you can strip out the whole fiat currency thing and just view the prices in terms of their gold value, and, and you see it. And again, this is what happened in, in a lot of time that is is gold, I'd say, underperformed. I mean, other assets went up in terms of his currency in terms of gold, obviously, so no one really wanted gold. Um, the whole point was to, to deposit gold and get his paper. Uh, and, and then when, the, when, when the, the, the end became clear to you know, observers at the time, and looking back in history, when gold started flowing out of the bank. So, various noblemen towards the top realized, okay, this is going as far as it's going to go. This isn't a new era. This is, you know, economic laws still apply, and they was, they went to the bank and started sneaking the gold out. and And, and interestingly, you know, the, the, there's a story of the, the Prince de Conti who showed up with three carriages to take his gold away, and the Regent demanded he return to it because it was too obvious. And and then people figured out, hey, you know, maybe going to the bank and making redemption isn't so politically astute. Well, do I'll buy it at the coin shop instead because right. no one knows about it. I don't know who I am, and they would smuggle the gold out 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 the uh, out out of the country, and and then, as always happens, as the gold started flooding out, the state eventually banned the use of gold and silver because it was subversive. Again, the same way Roosevelt did, the same way Rosbier did, the same way Diocletian did. I mean, this is again a very uh, a constant theme through through history. Um, but it didn't matter. I mean, the idea was that everyone uses the notes, and this was Keynesian's idea too, right? If yeah. if, if if the banks don't need to show up with gold to redeem, then they can print money forever, and, and the bank system can never be in trouble because no one ever can redeem capital in the bank. And that's the system we live under today. The, the problem is that uh, real resources become scarce and prices go higher, and then of course price controls come and they try to manage it that way. But but that's but, but that that is where we are now. What's interesting is to in, in our. Circumstance, which is historically an anomaly, is that it, it usually becomes very obvious to the state that they should ban gold. It's tough this time. The reason is because the reason why the Congress allowed gold to be owned again, I mean, you know, remove the felony uh, 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 power for, for owning gold in 1974, is because the Keynesians intellectually had no basis to ban it. If, if the whole Keynes idea is that gold is a useless artifact. Then, then why on earth is it a felony? And so that that, that fact alone undermined the Keynesian intellectual framework. So they really had to make it legal again. And can you imagine, Grant and Bill, <laughs> what where the world would have to be for the US to say, oh, it goes a felony again? And 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 that act would of course. Reveal, which all of us already know, that the whole Keynesian state system is completely bankrupt. I'm not saying you can't get there, but I am right, saying that right. that uh, getting there is is truly the end game because it it gives up the whole idea that Keynesianism exists for the, the good of the people, and it would really reveal it's just good for the state and and the, and the oligarchs who control the state.
1: Well, a lot would have to go wrong to even get to that juncture. I mean, you know, there would have to be some sort of problems for them to even think about thinking about confiscating gold since most of them don't agree. No, they don't think it has any value we will ha- will will have to have proven it has value and the stock and bond markets will have, have to have gotten in trouble so it, it if 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 it were to occur which i don't think it will either it would have to be several steps down the road several major steps down the road precisely
2: uh, which is great because it means that you know americans especially, i think you know most people will have the opportunity as we get further down this rabbit hole, to in fact save their capital and and uh, and go and, and and buy gold,
0: right? So so that's the prologue of the book out of the way then. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, as, as I said, yeah, you know, it, it's such a beautiful story, the John Law story. For the people that haven't heard it, and I'll make sure there are links so that everyone can go and, and read that chapter and hopefully order the book afterwards. But let's talk about where we are today because you know, ha- having the knowledge that you have of history, and-, and not just this credit bubble, this was really one of the first observable credit bubbles, but the the kind of litany of them that we've seen. And I think what you've done so beautifully so far, both here on the podcast and in that prologue, is make it apparent that these things never change. <laughs> they just right. don't change. Human beings make the same mistake over and over and over again. So bring us Into the here and now, talk about the credit bubble that we're in, how you see it, where you see perhaps the weakest points of it, and where inflation features into that. Because that was, I think, the point that that you're making back there is that when the prices of goods and services start rising, it's not necessarily the confidence that goes, it's the necessity to put food on the table.
2: Well, that's right. And and I think the the way I look at at this current crisis we're in versus the last one is that there are different things. So, so 2008, when the banks broke, what the Fed did was create new reserves to the banks. And they went out and they lent to get assets. Now banks lend for you know consumer prices too, obviously, and buy you know, uh, dishwashers and, and food credit cards. But for the most part, it's assets. And so we have had was an asset bubble where ships and houses and things went up in up in price. And, and then you know that over capacity story and then it collapses. Um, what's different this time is that the Fed is underwriting federal checks to people who aren't working. I mean, as we all know, when the, when the pandemic yeah. first hit. The Fed and government said most people, or a lot of people, can't go to work, so they stopped being productive. Again, this is just basic, says <laughs> law. You can't consume more than you produce. And but, but the state didn't want anyone to suffer, so they said, "Hey, look, even though you can't work, we we'll give you, we'll, we'll print up the money, given to you, so you can keep consuming the same amount." And yeah, but that it wasn't possible because there were fewer goods, and so the result of that money printing just has to be. It's very simple. It has to be rising consumer prices. And so, to me, what's been happening over the last. A year, 18 months, is very different from what happened in 2008. I should say it's both, because, of course, if we look back, it was, it was September 2019 that the repo market blew up, and the Fed had already started printing money to save the banks and the and the shadow banking system, more precisely. So there is an asset component to it. And of course, there are. If you look at the asset markets, you can see they're going crazy. But unlike OA, there's also this this, re, this, this uh, retail, I would call it, uh, money printing, to, to individuals to fund their purchases. And it looks to me like that's not going away. I mean, the whole idea of the left is, is, is these, are these universal income schemes that they're introducing and in, in, in baby steps, but, but they're, they're, they're coming. And, and again, there, there are historical parallels, too. I mean, it's, it's not an exact parallel, but um, when the Romans began to devalue their currency, in the first century AD. Uh, Like in our world, all the wealth concentrated to the people who knew how to navigate currency markets and could raise debt capital, and then, of course, default on it through inflation. And so what you wind up with, with instead of uh, yeoman farmers, i.e. capital distributed among the people, uh, important senators who had all the capital and then everyone else became poor. And so how they responded to that, well, to keep social stability, they started giving everyone free bread, right? bread and circuses uh, and a bit of entertainment. And, and this eventually backed up to the state because they had to tax the productive people more and more and more to fund the the unproductive people who who, who could have been productive not because they're bad people just there were no uh, economic opportunities. Meanwhile, the important senators, of course, avoided all the taxes because they're important. And that's more or less what's happening in our society. When you when you you, you, uh, you know, when you see read that that uh, rich people only pay uh, very very few taxes. Yeah, it's not some rich guy like your buddy who made a lot of money, right? It's Bill Gates or someone who knows how to structure his empire so they pay taxes. People who actually make a lot of money on the salary or just a normal guy, they pay a tax up what you as you know. Yes. And then more and more people are left out of the system, uh, just like in Rome. And so the, the impetus is to keep social st- stability, we've got to fund those people. Uh, so they don't get too upset. And, and the way you do that is you tax the productive people, again, not the oligarchs, but the productive people. And, and this is a very, very unhealthy a dynamic that, that we're in.
0: And it feels like kind of that's the stage in this process, and, and you can map these events almost to the same steps right throughout history. So, So what does that tell us about where we potentially are and what potentially happens next?
2: Yeah, well, so, I mean... <laughs> if yeah, if you're a fed economist and you just think about numbers right there's no reason why you can't keep printing money at a certain pace or an accelerating pace as long as all the numbers balance and your model works and then everything's fine the reason i bring up the whole social stability points is that there are consequences you get shortages in certain items you get increasing wealth disparity and so you get on you get instability in the society and so you can't run this thing forever because there are real consequences to these to these policies that that undermine and and the, the foundations of civilization and and uh and, and the country and again i mean in, in the roman experiment they got to a place where diocletian implemented the most comprehensive price controls uh of, of the ancient world and, and and that was the end in fact yeah it wasn't just that Penalty for uh, uh, breaking the price controls, so selling your stuff above market was was death. You know, in a good Roman fashion, uh, it got to a point where people didn't bring their their goods to market because they couldn't get a fair price. To them. well, that all also sort of became a capital offense. Right, so then there was no point in producing or anything. Now, I mean, I think we're a long way from, from that stage, but but you can see it's heading in that in that direction. And um, I mean, this country has had multiple incidences of, of price controls. We, we, we and and you could even say that you know healthcare right now is under a scheme of yeah. price controls, and you don't really think of it that way, but it's true. And and so what happens in price controls is that the the connected get goods politically; they have some friend that slips it to them, um, and the rich obviously can buy it because they can afford uh, that they, they get access to it. And then there's shortages. So if you're not connected uh, and you can't go the black markets and pay above market, you you get nothing. And and so that that as as the socialist impulse. Increases in, in in virulence in this country. I think that that will become more and more of a feature of, of life here, and, and it becomes more and more unbearable. And if people eventually just stop, just defect, and, and stop stop playing the game. And, and that's that's uh, that's where we're headed again, unfortunately. Now, and let, 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 let me just add it really quickly that that the the way out of this is, and I hate to say, it, but complete collapse, right? So what's incredible when you read the Weimar. Uh, 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 stories is how long the Germans put up with it, right? Right, and, right? And once they said, "Forget it," we're just you know, we're not using the, the society large that we're rejecting this whole system. Well, I mean, the second that you get a, a, a rational pricing system back in place and a rational free market currency, the, things revive almost immediately. And it wasn't just Weimar; um, uh, I think it was Jacques Rueff who wrote up uh, uh, Germany after World War II. And it's the same thing. You know, after World War II, um, w- w- when the Nazis had uh, I mean, they're described as ultra right wing, but of course they weren't. They were left wing. They, they had government controls, they had price controls, they had industrial controls. And, and when the Americans uh, won, what did they do? They put uh, uh, Kenneth uh, Galbraith in charge, and he continued the price control, the scientific management. And of course, things didn't get better. And eventually, West Germany got to a point where it was a complete collapse, and and they decided just to let it all go I and mean, one day they just said, you know we're removing all the controls and all the prices and all the economists that everyone will starve. No, and, and the opposite happened I mean almost immediately Western began its recovery to become the powerhouse it's it still today and, and so so the hope is that that at some point there's a collapse I don't know, I mean society collapse but economic collapse is big enough that it's just too difficult for the state to, to manage it. It's like the Soviet Union, they decide one day, you know, we're not sending attacks and we're just going to let the thing go. And and that's, that's what we need to cleanse this whole system is, is the class big enough where the people who run there, who are, who, who run the, the oligarchs who run the system simply just give up. And, and I mean, unfortunately, that's, that's the only way out of the mess we're in. Well,
1: it seems to me, and of course I'm a little Johnny, one note on this subject, but the <laughs> And of course, this doesn't mean it'll have to happen that exactly this way. But the most obvious, the most likely case to me is that at some point, the bond market finally gets the joke. I mean, the quote unquote, Biden Magellanans love to run around and discuss real yields. But what they mean are the break-even rates on TIPS. And you can see like on a day like today, where you compare the CPI, which is just one month to the 10-year, is quite a bit larger like practically double the size of the quote-unquote real rates derived by the tips. And so it seems to me like the bond market's kind of got this delusion about itself. It's done so well for so long. None of these policies which should have hurt the bond market have. And so it seems to me that we run the risk. At some point, bond buyers just are forced or or decide that they want a higher rate of return. And the bond market slowly starts to not cooperate with the Fed. And at some point the bond market disagrees with the Fed and then that basically calls the Fed's bluff. And then it can choose to do some sort of yield curve control or whatever it wants to. I mean
2: Well, I was gonna say, Bill, that's absolutely right. In fact, one of the things that John Law did at one point was buy all the sovereign debt. Right. So the Fed can do that. I mean, it can do that. I mean, the, the result would be, I think, a catastrophic increase inflation. Right. But but they'll have to start at some point. Do we let Deals go higher and, and allow the banking system, the private equity system, like the, the whole finance system to blow up. Or do you buy the whole freaking market, just cross your fingers and hope it works? I mean, and, and that's what they'll get to at that, that decision. Well, then
1: at that point, the currency, even against the other crazy bits of fiat, has to weaken. I mean, so, I mean, there's some combination of the FX market and the bond market this is the only thing that's going to change these guys' mind because. Those of us that have been skeptical of the policies have been saying since they started QE, you can never leave QE, ZERP, and NERP. And, of course, a lot of people thought that was crazy, but it's now been proven to be true. People seem to be unwilling to make the next step. Well, if you can't leave these policies, and therefore they're failed, that you know at some point they're going to produce a weak bond market or a weak currency, and then it'll be a train wreck. But the thinking yeah, I, hasn't gotten I, I that agree. far down the road. I,
2: I agree. It will fall under its own weight at some point. The only outlier I can see accelerating that would be some sort of geopolitical problem. Sure. Right? I, sure. Imagine if Iran sank an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf or, or, or China and Russia uh, were, were to uh, exert their growing authority to create their own monetary spheres and economic spheres. I can see the US being some geopolitical thing that accelerates the collapse. But it'll, we don't need that. It'll, it'll happen. It will take longer. But it'll, it'll fall under its own weight at some point, for sure.
0: Dan, Bill brought up yield curve control there, and I I wanted to get to this, because where we're at, as you've demonstrated so beautifully thus far in, in the conversation, is nowhere we haven't been before with maybe a couple of additional wrinkles thrown in. We have this pyramid that is built upon effectively free cost of capital. Now, the longer this goes on, the more that zero cost capital leaks out outside financial markets into asset markets, into sporting franchises, into into housing, everywhere you look now, the entire economic system is now not only built upon, but dependent upon low interest rates. There isn't a single part of the world we've built around us now that functions, apart from savings, if interest rates go up. So... With that as an idea and the knowledge you have of previous examples of this in history, we're seeing price controls in China already. The next thing I would imagine is yield curve control. But what does that look like and what are the perils of yield curve control?
2: Well, a couple of points. One is, when, as you know, when Volcker increased rates to 21% in 1980, there was a lot less debt around. So he could do that. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. hard to even imagine that happening today, well, what it would look like in the world. risk 21%. Everyone would be would be completely back up. Um, but curve but control it has a history. And again, the Fed looks at its, at its own history this is for its quote-unquote toolbox. They did it after World War II, and, and it worked, quote-unquote, right? They, they basically kept yields flat while the inflation ate away the, the debt that they'd raised to fight the war. The, the difference is, in 1940, when the war ended, uh, the US government controlled one third of the known gold reserves on the planet, and, and 80% of the Fed's assets w- was, was gold. Well, w- when you're the hegemon, <laughs> you won the war, when you got that much gold, you can be a little loose, uh, loosey goose with your economics, right? And, and from 1940 to 1970, of course, that changed dramatically between the, the Johnson, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon years and all the spending. That that number went from eighty percent down to twelve percent, and and two thirds of the gold was withdrawn by Europeans who had the right under the Bretton Woods system to redeem their their currency to gold. So the point is, you know, a rich country can do that, can spend its wealth that way if it so chooses. But again, curve control a day, <laughs> be a very different thing because we don't have any any real assets backing the dollar. So all they have to do is, is all they would they have to do is just print and print and print and print, and print to keep those. Uh, uh, interest rate lower. And again, the, what, the, what I said earlier to Bill was that they would wind up in a situation where they would have to buy the entire stock of Treasury bonds. And again, what would the currency look like? Um, and and this goes back, again, I have a somewhat heterodox view on, on, on the Fed's balance sheet, but there have been two times in American history when the Fed made uh, gold ownership illegal. Actually, not just one. One was 1933, we just talked about. The other one was during the Civil War. Salmon Chase, after whom the bank is named, was, was Lincoln's uh, uh, Treasury Secretary, and the the, the Northern government uh, uh, issued greenbacks to fight to fight the South, uh, which were simply you know, uh, to be redeemed from from t- future taxes. So this really was a fiat currency, and of course, not surprisingly, they began to uh, depreciate against gold. So, so Chase he didn't make gold illegal. He made trading gold illegal. And 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 all sorts of fines, and the government went in and and monkey around the gold price to make it unpalatable. And and when Congress did that, when he got Congress to pass a law saying you can't trade gold, the greenback collapsed, not gold. Because again, gold is free market money. So once you couldn't convert your greenbacks into gold, people wanted them a lot less. And Congress reversed course two weeks later, uh, because of that. So 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 in in 1933, people commentators writing then assumed that when Roosevelt made Gold illegal, the same thing would happen. It didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because Andrew Mellon had repaid most of the federal debt in the 1920s. And the Fed was, at, at the time, more than 50% backed by, by gold. So in fact, the dollar was a very solid instrument because of the Fed's balance sheet. And so Roosevelt could do that, and the dollar didn't suffer. So I, and I, I give these two juxtaposed examples because today, if we get in a situation where the, where the Fed says... You know, I don't think they'll make gold illegal, but you can't trade it. Or it'll be a 90% yeah. transaction tax or something like that to try to mobilize the gold as a competition of the dollar. It, it'll be more of the Civil War and less like three, because the Fed doesn't have any real assets. And so the result of that would be not gold going down, but a sudden enormous decline in the value of the dollar. So in other words, the gold price would go immediately to you know 10,000 or, or about, in, in my view.
1: The biggest problem with seeing the dollar getting quite weak is... I think for, that most people have is because they say, well, yeah, but look at the euro, look what they're doing, or look at the Japanese, look what they're doing, or look what the Chinese are doing. And and it's all a relative game of less um, debauchery. And the factor that might be most crucial is the sheer size of the US debt and the amount of, of monetization that might be required. Although when you look at the EU, it's, it's not tiny.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it makes a difference in this sense. Back in the 19th century, when you had a functioning gold standard. If one country decided to inflate, its currency would go abroad. And then those holders would show up back at, at the inflated country and demand redemption right. of that paper in the gold. So capital would flee that country. And so these credit bubbles were, were, were cut short very quickly. You can't do it anymore. And this was, again, Jacques Rousseau's point where he said the US could run deficits about tears, because what happens now is dollars wind up in Europe or China or other places, and the only thing they can do with them is go buy US assets and so the dollars come right back to New York the, the, the next day. And so I think because the bank system can't be attacked directly through redemption globally, which is, again, this is all the Keynesian design of, of Bretton Woods, um, uh, the bubble is being able to go on longer and, and larger than ever before in history. But it doesn't change the fact that you have real consequences in terms of social stability and also... Uh, rising prices and misallocation of resources that eventually will bring the whole system tumbling down. It just will take longer. And of course, it will be worse. I mean, again, you look back in the 19th century, you had more panics, but they lasted much, much uh, yeah. shorter periods. We didn't have these massive depressions in the 30s. They just didn't happen because you couldn't get the economy to be so out of whack because the currency system was so sound.
0: Dan, you brought up one kind of exogenous threat to this whole thing, almost as a throwaway a little while ago, but I want to go back to that. And that is this um, this idea of the Russians and the Chinese building you know, a parallel economic system that essentially provides an alternative to the dollar-based system that we all operate in today. You know, you and I have spoken about this before several times, but but that seems to be underway if you're paying attention. What do you think is happening there? How far along are they? And what do you think is the likely path for for that potential outcome.
2: Yeah, so this goes back to one of the many idiotic decisions by the Obama administration where I can't remember which country it was, but some minor country we didn't like, and we cut them off from the SWIFT system, and so their banks couldn't function. And the Chinese and the Russians (laughs) weren't aware of this, and holy crap, the US can do that? Uh, and, and realize that they themselves were vulnerable to this. And so they immediately, of course, began to react and build their own domestic bank systems that can survive without SWIFT. And so the US, again, abandoned one of its primary powers for, for, a, trivial, for a trivial reason. So, so they've been working on that for several years. And 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 uh, I, I, going back to history, like many other empires and hegemons, you know, when you when you revolt against the empire, you get you get crushed usually, and that happened in Iraq, happened in Iraq, happened in Syria, happened in Libya. But but then one day someone revolts in the empire, can't do anything about it. Again, this is the story of every empire, not just Rome and the Soviet Union or, or other things. And and so what we're seeing is that the hegemonic power of the U.S., which was pretty plenary following World War II, eroded, and and uh, a situation where uh, the military progress by China and, and by Russia. They certainly can't challenge the U.S. on a global basis, but they have been able to carve out spheres of influence against which the U.S. is becoming more more powerless. And I think as U.S. geopolitical power wanes, and it's waning because domestically we have such bad policies and such bad leadership, uh, of course our economic power is waning, and therefore military power is an outgrowth of that, um, that that over time, uh, as the rest of the world realizes that or has to choose which system they're going to be in. And China's trying to make that choice more and more stark. Um, you know, China's neighbors may decide, hey, you know, maybe maybe we don't like China, but we're in their backyard and the US simply losing the power to protect us. So maybe we've got to make a deal and, and play play ball. And so it'll put ever more stress on the US's ability to to marshal the resources of allies to to control its fate, to control trade. Trade And again, the demand of other countries or the interest of other countries in holding the dollar as a reserve asset and having everyone else use dollars. I mean, why does the US dollar persist in its value the way it does and Argentina doesn't? <laughs> Argentina has many of the same policies we have. The difference is there's no international demand for the peso, uh, whereas there's enormous international demand for, for dollars and then dollar, dollar assets. And, and this goes to the US's geopolitical system the uh, presence in the world. And so I think. I think that threats to that to that position also threaten the whole economic system of which we've been uh, based on for the past uh, almost 100 years.
0: Every part of this conversation has kind of centered in many ways around the existing system and potential threats to that system and, and how they've been dealt with, whether it was the criminalization of owning gold, whether it was the moves made back in John Law's time. Where does... Bitcoin in particular and cryptocurrency fit into this today because it's been held up as a potential escape route from the system in the event yeah. of the end game. But again, your knowledge of history and my reading of history tells me that generally these potential escape routes tend to be the first things that get crushed. So, <laughs> so when you look at cryptocurrencies, what do you see and how, and how do you view those through that, that lens of history?
2: Yeah, so I, I view cryptocurrencies as, as again, the, an effort by the market to create a currency for the market. And, and again, when, when you look back at currency systems, um, banks coalesce around existing private money. Uh, that they, they don't. Bit like John Law was a private bank that the state then co-opted. That is the history of money. The, the coin, the eventually coined in ancient Greece, was a private endeavor that then the city states took over because it they viewed it as a sovereign matter. So, so obviously, when you have a commercial system that's failing, the private market is again attempting to create a money that people can trust and, and trade around. Now, I'm as you probably know, I'm very skeptical about Bitcoin ability to do that precisely as Bitcoin because I don't think uh, Bitcoin. Is ever going to have the volatility profile that allows it to be money? The certainly of the technology surrounding crypto um, is, is a promising way to allow people to uh, to trade value, uh, uh, you know, without the government becoming involved. Now, as you point out, the government is going to jealously guard its privileges as a sovereign power to create senior origin fund itself. I mean. As commentators have said, especially back in the in the '60s when this got going, you know, if, if the U.S. citizens or any citizens in the Western world actually felt the real taxes being extracted from them, there would be a revolt tomorrow, right? But they don't feel it because so much of the government spending is funded by debt and inflation that, that you don't realize is happening. And and so, um, but but those bills will come due at some point. And again, I think those endeavors are critically important because. When the government fail, fails, how will it goes to be allocated? And so, to have systems in place or being or na- even nascent systems that function, it means there'll be somewhere to go to when when the system collapses. And the, the big threat, of course, is that in the in, in, until now, until really the Bretton Woods era, collapses were pretty much country based, and so it's very obvious when Germany collapsed, they started using the British pound and, and the U.S. dollar, which were gold-backed. and so you would restart the economy overnight. Um, but when the current system goes down, there are no gold-backed currencies anymore because the IMF uh, says that you can't have a gold-backed currency. So what, what is the market going to use? And I think these are efforts, again, by the market writ large to solve that problem.
0: So if I had to put you on the spot and get your prediction on how the endgame of this particular financial system plays out based on you know, all, your, all your reading of history, what's the most likely course we take from here, do you think? I'm not going to hold you to this, obviously. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, and, and, and we well, I don't mean, know where you live, so you're safe. <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> I, I think what one of the, one of the features we will observe is increasing volatility, and 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 we've seen that. I mean, th- think about th- think about how long 2008 took to play out. It was more or less 18 months from the time things started getting dicey to the bottom, of the Fed printing money, and, and then we came back. And so, so maybe, maybe more than that. Maybe the crisis was about 18 months of duration for, for, for the, for the latest episode of last year in March, I mean, all those, what, what took the month, what took the Fed 18 months to implement, the ultimate of about 10 day period. It, yeah. was, it was much and think about gold, right? I mean, gold went, went cratering into that, into that time period. Right. And again, last time it took six, seven months for gold to come out of that dive in 2008. This time, I mean, how long did it take? <laughs> like yeah. two, two, three yeah. weeks? weeks, people yeah. seen the movie and so they knew what was going to happen and they wanted to front run each other. Right. And so, we're going to have a period again at some point of, of deflation. And this can happen because at some point asset prices or goods prices go up so much, the Fed gets spooked. Now, where that is, I, I can't tell you because I don't know. I'm not the Fed. I know when, when at one point will trigger their fear. But they'll be afraid at some point of rising prices. And they will taper for real, I think. And then you'll have crashing asset prices. And they'll be even more terrified because all their friends will call up who run banks and private equity firms and say, hey, look, if you don't turn the money printing on right now, <laughs> the ATMs will open tomorrow, and and they won't necessarily be wrong about that, right? And and so and then the Fed will say, oh my God, we, we get we hit it again. But that that time period between those events will become ever ever shorter. And again, as you know, one of my charts people like to share, I like to share is, is a a chart of the gold price uh, in Weimar marks. I only have a monthly time series. But as the mark goes up in value, the volatility of that thing keeps going up, and I, I've read some on Twitter and people comment on it, it doesn't often go negative, but even just flat in a hyperinflationary environment is devastating. <laughs> your bratwurst just went up three times and gold was down 10%. I mean, you're basically wiped out, right? So so I think we'll start seeing that kind of, of, of play in the asset markets. And then at some point, and I think this is an period of volatility, uh, uh, you, you'll, you'll see the whole system break. And, and, and at some point, the Fed will stare into the abyss. The country will stare into the abyss. And I, and I think the, the next decision point, I mean, every crisis for the last, I don't know, 40 years, 60 years, has involved a choice between abandoning the system or creating more government power. And again, this is Janet Yellen talks about this how the government was able to cr- increase its power to fight back the forces of the market. No, no, yeah. the, the market is trying to fix the problem, but that, that's the way they view it. And so the next crisis, the Fed will have, the, not the Fed, but the Fed, but also just the government writ large will have to decide are we going down the full fascist route where we, the government, are going to control the assets directly, control human action directly to maintain the system? Order do we let it collapse? And and one of the things that I you know motivates me to talk about these things, right about these events, is to try to educate people that yeah, the collapse is bad, but that's the way out. And if you go down this path, that that Mussolini followed, that Hitler followed, that Roosevelt followed, that, that all these bad guys in history followed, you get to a very very scary place. Now you know this is road to serfdom. This is just straight high, yeah. and that's what we're on. And so uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be bad. And so uh, you know, it, it the, the key thing is to. Put your assets now, if you have any, in stores of value that will persist uh, through this period. And then you're going to be Tesla. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, the Fed is so full of their own BS. You know, I remember when Bernanke first started talking about deflation in 08. I mean, um, it, the f- how he could have any credibility with his subprime, his contained comment right before it was about to implode is another topic. But you know they talk so glibly about we have the tools and they're so naive they do not understand that it's not about tools. it's about willpower. And there is no chance they're going to have the willpower. The first time we get down the path of talking about tapering or tapering about you know talking about ta- whatever it is that sets them off, the financial markets are going to throw a, a fit. And they'll be back to what you suggest. I, I, I what what I find so amazing is how so many people are unable to conclude that the, that the central banks are already trapped. There's no way out. And you're right, a collapse is the only way to to clean the system and start over. But it's almost like to, to have that happen that people have to realize that the Emperor is not wearing any clothes. And so this whole the whole psychology of how people perceive it to be okay, obviously it works until it doesn't. And then when it starts to change, it changes very fast, but I'm just, but well, to, to your point, Bill,
2: uh, I, was, to say, you know, I, I think my brain, my reading is Bernanke actually believes this stuff. He's an academic. Oh, I, know he does. He, I know he does. He does. But what's incredible is that he believes it. And I think he, he wasn't It's like Clinton. he believes it when he says it, you know, he said, he told the country in 2009, when the crisis is over, we're going to return the balance sheet to its normal size. <laughs> and then where did the taper start under under Yellen, under Powell, It was it was what 2018, it was ten years 18, later. 18, yeah. And they got it, they got it down, you know, from being up five X to being up three X, and the wheels were sort a of pop out of the market. And now it's it's at what almost eight trillion. And they're still parroting. Oh, gee, yeah, when the crisis is over, we're worrying about the normality. And and so the one thing I think he believes his own theories, these academics, these these uh, Keynesians, Krugman and company, those sorts of people. On the other hand, it's not just they've been proven wrong; in their
1: own terms, have been proven wrong. They, they, they can't normalize the biology, no. and for any of them not to realize that is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, they they, they simply cannot. I mean, they started, and then we had the repo <laughs> crisis, as you point out, and that was that was the end of it, because they were un, the they were unwilling to see what would happen, and that was reasonably innocuous. I mean, it hadn't gotten very far, right? It was mostly in the repo market; it spilled over in equities a bit, uh, and, and so I mean. I, I, it's just mind-boggling to me that the, the amount of confidence that people have in their ability to navigate this. But I think that's been because people have sort of made drunk by the fact that asset prices have behaved so well net net for so long, and we've been doing the same bad things since two thousand and eight or nine, and it hasn't really mattered yet. So people are just stopped thinking about it, I suppose.
2: Yeah, and can continue the analogy, Grant, you know, uh, the the end game of the John Law system, John Law had to uh, he, again, like Belang, he believed in the system. He thought he was he was yeah. scientific and doing something, and he had to flee France dressed as a woman, uh, because they're all chasing. He ch- ch- lost a lot of money. And I always imagined Bernanke in a wig, you know, giving <laughs> <getting> some <laughs> private jet to go to Davos. And unfortunately it never it never happened, but uh <laughs> it, should, it could have, it should have. Well, I think Law died penniless in Vienna, is that right? If, you know, uh, it was, he 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 was in he was penniless. The, the region gave him a, a little stipend uh, to keep him in in, in, uh, in know, some, some style. And then the region died, the stipend ended, and now and, uh, it, was, it was a sad end to him.
0: Uh, well, look, Dan, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I've loved everybody. But before I let you go, can you just give people. The quick synopsis of the book, what you're writing about, um, <laughs> what you said—not yeah. so, not, not, not Le- chapter but just so they know yeah, what yeah. the story. I mean, we've covered such a, a tiny piece of it, and and I'm I'm excited for people to get a, a sense of what the rest of it. Covers.
2: Yeah, yeah. So so it's really the story of credit bubbles, and as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, you can trace in in, in contour form these bubbles back three or four thousand years. So there's nothing new about these things, and and what I think the power of the book is for me writing it anyway is is taking out quotations from from older periods of, of bubbles and 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 showing that well, the things they said hundreds, thousands of years ago are exactly the same things they say today. And so it's not just a story of you know, this happened, that happened, and the money supply was this, the last surprise went there. It's the quotations of people living through it, which you can identify with, people who live in other places, other cultures, other times, and 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 you recognize it as what you're living through. And 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 the idea is that having seen this pattern play out over and over and over and over again, which is what the book does, it shows this thing over and over, is that is that you can is It's the familiarity of it allows you to identify in your own time what, what you're living through and, and where the end game necessarily is. And I say necessarily, I hate to be so hubristic to say, oh, I the future, but it's, you know, <laughs> the, the patterns are so clear. And again, if you assume that that humanity hasn't changed, that human nature hasn't changed and the, the reactions to these these stimuli are the same and, and these systems are the same. We know what the end is going to be. We're maybe not exactly when right or how, but we, we know what the end game is. And that, and that's the real point of the book, is to educate people about where we're headed by looking at the past and showing how it's always worked out in the past and and why.
0: Yeah, I would argue that you're not being hubristic by saying you know the future. You're being realistic by saying you know the past. And,
1: and, and you're saying that you
0: understand human nature, which has a tendency right, not to change. Right, right, exactly right. Dan, listen, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute joy. And uh, I love talking history with you. I learn something every time. And, and I'm, I'm excited to hear the audience reaction to this because I think it was, it was an absolute masterclass in what has come before and what is likely to follow. So, so thank you for giving us that time.
2: Well, appreciate having me on. I always always enjoy talking to both of you. We'll
1: uh, do it again when we get a little further down the road and we have a little more data. <laughs>
2: I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Dan. All right, Dan. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye. bye.
0: Oh, man, that was that, oh, just – you know, Dan is such a brilliant guy. I, I, for the first time I've met him, I just kind of sit there with my jaw open. His knowledge of history is is encyclopedic. And when you listen to someone that knows the history that well, Bill, I say, as I said in the in the, in the conversation, the beauty of it is you don't need to point any of these parallels out. They are so right. obvious to anybody listening to that. You can't help but think, wait a minute, is this – Then or is this now? The same thing happens over and
1: over and over and over again, and will continue to do so. And that's because human nature never changes. Okay. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, I would imagine that the average investor probably hasn't spent a lot of time on financial history, and you know, you could spend a lot of time on the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, or you could be like Dan and have spent time over the last yeah couple of thousand years, two thousand years. (laughs) And w- what is remarkable is how these things never change. And I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about John Law in any detail. I mean, I know generically, but when you start actually digging into the details of it, it is truly amazing that it's, yeah. it's the same movie right now. It's just I mean, like different yeah. different little widgets and things like that. But
0: It's exactly right. And, and uh, look, just so people know, Dan's book is available for pre-order. It's not out yet. The book is called Golden Tears. And if you go to the website goldentears.org, you'll find A, the ability to order it, which uh, I would recommend you do, but you'll also find the full prologue there, which is 20 plus pages that that talks about the Mississippi bubble. And um, I mean, it's absolutely riveting. For anyone that's familiar with that story, it's a wonderful account of it uh, written beautifully by Dan. If you're not familiar with that story, then I cannot recommend this highly enough. It will open your eyes to a world of possibilities that are so obvious that they really kind of blend into probabilities rather than possibilities.
1: And speaking of obvious, Dan made a point that I will embarrass myself by saying I had never thought of before, which I think is a really good way to think about QE today. And when he was talking about, you know, lending against uh, bills of sale or, yeah. you know, bills of lading, you're lending against a transaction has occurred as opposed to trying to promote. And when you look, for me, I'd never thought about it that way. I'm embarrassed to say. And once you think about it that way, it's just so clear what the consequences are liable to be. Obviously, the timing isn't, yeah. But um, I thought that was an excellent point that he made. Yeah, and, and that's what we're all trying to figure out.
0: Well, look, uh, if, for those who you that don't follow Dan already, he's on Twitter and uh, he is well worth a follow. You'll find him at Myrmican, and that's the name of his fund. The, it's, the spelling is M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N. The only issue I would take with that entire hour and change, Bill, I think uh, Dan's been watching way too many movies when he talked about the Americans winning World War II. As a proud Brit, I have to little step in there and say whoa but I I was enjoying what he was saying so much I didn't want to jump in at the time but uh, Dan you've listened to this back come on fella I know you've been watching U571 too many times I think we found the ending machine damn it um Listen, all that It was a team, it was it was a a team, team effort. effort. It was a it team effort. It was a effort. team effort. Exactly right. We pulled you in off the bench when we were getting into the nasty part of the game. That's what it was, though. <laughs> Listen, well, um, the, ja- the Japanese might have helped you a Well, little. Possibly, possibly, possibly. But let's not split hairs. Yeah. We're in a roundabout way. <laughs> Look, it's been, it's been another fascinating conversation. Uh, my thanks to everybody listening. Please do follow us on Twitter. If you don't do that already, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm still at Fletcap. Still there and hopefully always will be. Mate, uh, I see you hobbling around, which is good. You look you're looking much more mobile, so the
1: radio. I, well. I got my I got my boot off last week and I'm I'm now walking in street shoes or bare feet, whichever. Fantastic.
0: All right, well I look forward to seeing you on tennis court again soon. Me too.
1: <laughs> All right, take care. Bye bye. All right, see ya.